to the most accurate podcast brought to you by 444.com. I'm your host, Greg Smith. You may have heard me briefly introduce myself with Anthony and John a couple episodes ago, but if not, hello! I'm joining them on this podcast feed going forward, and in order to keep some semblance of continuity between our various episodes, I wanted to maintain John and Anthony's tradition of showcasing some intro music. So the track you just heard at the beginning of this show is Birdsong by The Men from their 2013 record New Moon. Their sound can be pretty diverse from song to song or album to album, sometimes veering into the lane of punk rock, which uh, is is a personal passion of mine. But um, New Moon is a pretty good jumping off point if you're a fan of the stuff that John usually selects on, on their episodes. So anyway, if you like what you heard, check them out on Spotify via the link in the show notes. Uh, otherwise, on today's episode, I'll be talking with 4 for 4's offensive line guru, Justin Edwards. But before I bring him in, I want to let you know that 444.com's early bird rate is still available through June 30th. If you sign up before then, not only will you get our best rate of the year on all of 4 4's amazing tools and rankings, you'll also get a $35 coupon to join an FFPC league. That's enough for free entry into one of their best ball leagues, or you can use the $35 coupon towards any of their other leagues. On top of all that, if you sign up at 444.com by June 14th, you'll be entered for a chance to win a signed Devontae Adams jersey. No coupon codes to remember, just go to 444.com, subscribe today, and take your fantasy game to the next level. Without further ado, though, I want to welcome in Justin Edwards to the show. Follow him on Twitter at Justin underscore Redwards. Now, Justin, you just dropped a three-part offensive line series at 444. Listeners, you can check that out via the links in the show notes. And I wanted to kick it off like this to you, Justin. How did you get into O-line study? Like, what made you want to study offensive line play in the first place? Well, mostly I was just ignorant about it. Um, When I started working with PFF a few seasons ago, I realized I didn't know as much of the X's and O's as I thought I did. So I figured I'd find a niche. So I went with O-line because I knew the least about it. I wanted to torture myself. Just wanted to see exactly what the offensive line does. I started trying to read books. Best of my ability, <laughs> looking up YouTube videos, figuring out different schemes. Yeah. What was the biggest preconceived notion you had that was shattered, or what was the biggest surprise to you after you really started to dig in on O lines? Mostly that these dudes were not just walls of flesh. Like there was way more athleticism than I thought was required to be an offensive lineman. You're not just a 350 pound dude getting in someone's way. Um, the fact that they might be the smartest people on the field was kind of a curveball for me, realizing how much they actually have to keep an eye on the defense. I thought they just kind of, uh, you know, stood up and got in people's way. O-line Wonderlick scores. That's the big market inefficiency in the NFL yeah. right now, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Justin and I are going to talk a lot about O-line. So be sure to check out the articles on 444.com. Before we get to that, though, I selfishly want to talk about 2QB formats because, Justin, you and I kind of became largely familiar writing at 2QBs.com together. And I'm curious, have you been paying attention to, you know, trends in the two-quarterback or super flex markets through the offseason? Have you done any drafts yourself? I'm in the middle of a King of the Hill 2 draft right now, which is a set of leagues put together by Scott Fish, the great Scott Fish, I should call him. The great Scott uh, Fish. But yeah, I'm curious, what, what's your uh, hype level for two quarterback formats at this point in the offseason? Oh, it's still just as hype as ever. Uh, I definitely didn't accidentally upon two QBs. I love that. Loved everything you guys were doing over there. 
Um, I just wrapped up a mock with uh, some of our own 444 people, guys and gals, and then um, some people over at Fantrax. I think I came away with a pretty decent team, but it's a mock, so, you know, can't keep it. What is your general strategy for the quarterback position in a 2QB league? Are you willing to pay up, or do you like to wait uh, as I do? Uh, I really would prefer to not pay up. If I can wait until the fifth or sixth round to grab my first one, that's great, but I don't want to grab the QB 22. I'd rather go in that mid QB 10 to QB 20 range and grab two of those guys and then just kind of be done with it until the 12th round or something. Yeah, this King of the Hill draft is a kind of special animal in that it's a 16-team super flex, so the quarterbacks have to go early because you can actually miss out if you wait too long. So after I had the fourth pick, after I took Alvin Kamara there, in the second round, Lamar Jackson was staring me in the face, and this is a quarter point per carry league as well. So with the rushing ability of Lamar Jackson, I could not say no. Like I looked at his projections at 444.com, and I parsed it out into the scoring settings for this KOTH league. And he was by far, you know, one of the highest scoring quarterbacks, at least of the guys who were available. So I pounced on that, got Dak Prescott on the swing back in the third. And then I went right back to the point per carry well with uh, two more running backs in the fourth and fifth. So at some point, I'm going to have to take a tight end and maybe some wide receivers. But because it's best ball, you can kind of wait on those positions. You're Mm. really just hoping for spiked weeks uh, from your wide receivers in that type of format. But this is very unique, not super specific to uh, the... (laughs) <laughs> the bulk of our listeners, you know, 16 team super flex. So um, I don't know anything else you got on two quarterback. Are you looking forward to Scott Fishbowl or should we get into offensive line talk? Uh, definitely getting psyched for uh, Scott Fishbowl. And yeah, I just want to remark you got the Konami code and you got a Konami code light with Prescott. who's still going to run probably five times a game too. Yeah. I'm kind of nice. big on Prescott this year. Anyway, I think the Cowboys are somehow a little underrated and, and maybe, I'm jaded, but I really liked the way they looked once they traded for Amari Cooper last season. I think John mm-hmm. Paulson on the other half of uh, this podcast feed has also expressed some some sleeper love for Dak Prescott, or at least some undervalued love. I don't know how much of a sleeper any quarterback can really be, but yeah, I, I'm really in on Prescott this year. I think he could have a nice season, and with the scoring settings the way they are, it was like kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Uh, well, let's talk O-line, man. I want to kick things off with more of a general question here. Who is your favorite offensive lineman? You can go young or old, fantasy reasons or otherwise. Like, Take this any direction you like. When it comes to O-linemen, who's your guy? I got to go with the guy that I watched for the, the bulk of my football interest. I got to go with Joe Thomas. I've never been a Browns fan per se, but the guy is just incredible. His 10,000-plus consecutive snaps – he played till his career ended in 2017, uh, 10 consecutive Pro Bowls, and he did all this on a team that had a 27% win percentage. Like, that's insane. He lost, like, 130 games in his career and won 48. I can't imagine how bad that team would have been without that left tackle, without maybe the best left tackle that's ever played. So now that Thomas is retired, who's your guy? Who do you look for as, like, the pinnacle of offensive line play still playing in the league? He's only been around for a year, but I love the Colts. Quentin Nelson, it's just so impressive how he came straight out of college and was just mauling professional National Football League defensive linemen. Uh, He plays with, you know, he's got a lot of heart, but he seems to really enjoy what he's doing. 
Uh, he brings an intensity to the, to the game that sometimes gets overlooked when you're only watching skill position players. Yeah, for sure. Now, let's get into how the O-line impacts fantasy football, because that's you know what we care about on a show like this. And yeah. a while back, I think back in March, you released a, a, an article at 444.com about those kind of overall impacts of the trenches on running backs, quarterbacks, wide receivers, etc. And one thing that you noted in that article were the struggles of the Dallas O-line in pass protection specifically last season. Do you forecast any sort of bounce back for them in 2019? Uh, I really do, actually. Um, not that any injuries are expected along the O-line or anywhere else, but uh, Travis Frederick's diagnosis of Gillian-Barr syndrome, um, how could anyone have predicted that? Um, he was losing feeling from his head to his toe. He had to sit out for an entire year, and then he had to have sh- shoulder surgery on top of that to end the season. He's expected to come back to full health. I don't know how many Gillian-Barr returns there's been in the history of the NFL, but everything seems to be good there. Um, couple that with the loss of their left tackle, Tyron Smith, coming in and out of the lineup all of 2018. That really helped Dak, who we were just talking about, set career highs with 52 sacks taken and 12 fumbles. Um, I believe if just one of those two, and hopefully both, can return to full health this year, it would be a huge boon to, pre- to Prescott. Uh, they're both in the lineup. They're both top five or top three at their position. So I really think they could have a sincere uh, bounce back. Do you buy into the notion of a player potentially being injury prone? Is that something you might worry about in a situation like this where these guys weren't healthy last year? Do you think that because of how big they are, because of how active they are and physical they are on a play-to-play basis, that maybe it might be tougher for an offensive lineman or I guess even a defensive lineman to come back from an injury and you know deliver at that same sort of high level? I think that's definitely the case with certain injuries. Um, and you look at like Gronk and his back problems, like back problems are probably not going to, going to go away. And that's kind of the problem with Tyron Smith. Um, I don't know if he's had surgery or how many, but I know that that's his lingering issue. So I'm more worried about that. I would be less worried about someone who's coming back from an illness or something like Travis Frederick's coming back from. Sure. But I think that you can be injury prone with specific injuries. I don't know about, you know, bursting a gallbladder making you injury prone, but a back, something like that. I think those can come back. Yeah. This guy had his appendix out last year. He's going to use doomed to have it happen again. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, not quite. Um, so in that piece, you also noted how, like, despite the fact that the Dallas O-line was really poor in pass protection, they were still somehow good in the running game. How would you describe the different O-line skills, traits, or schemes that make a unit succeed against the run, but not the pass, or vice versa? Like, How do you delineate between those two, and do you find it strange that this was the case for Dallas last year? Um, I think that you can, as a coordinator, as a play caller, you can scheme away from the weakness of a team in general, be it an offensive lineman, or you know, if you don't have... A quarterback who can throw the ball far, you're probably not going to be throwing uh, go routes the whole game. Um, so you could definitely, an offense can scheme away from their weaknesses. As far as uh, skills and traits, there's definitely, as we kind of touched on earlier, there's athleticism along the front line. And that's usually, it usually shows through in pass protection. The guys on the edge, the left tackle, the right tackle are going to be super athletic, typically, if you're any good. Um as the opposite of that, take, for instance, the newly signed uh, Mikey Apati, who's a massive 6'5", 335-pound guard for now the Seahawks. 
Um, not to say that he's not athletic, but he wins with power, which lends itself more to the run game, clearing out a, a gap for your running back. And that's the, exactly what the Seahawks want to do. Um, they run the ball 50% or more of the time, which is an outlier in this NFL. That's probably not a guy that's going to be starting on, say, the Cardinals, who he just left. They're trying to run a, a spread attack. They're not trying to pound the rock and, quote-unquote, wear the defense down. That's something that Seattle's trying to do. So they take that trait and can make use of it, where he would probably not use that trait too well in Arizona. Let's talk more about Seattle and their running game, because it is pretty fascinating that they're flying in the face of conventional wisdom that passing is the way to go in the modern NFL, just adamantly stating that they're going to keep running the ball as much as they can. And fantasy owners might actually want to hear something like that from certain teams. Like if a team can pull that off successfully, running backs are the most scarce commodities we have to deal with. I mean, except for maybe tight ends, but tight ends are such a trash heap for the most part. Anyway, anyway, I'm going down a rabbit hole that I shouldn't be with tight ends back to running backs in Seattle. (laughs) What are you doing with Rashad Penny and Chris Carson? Like, how do you value them relative to each other? Do you think they can both be productive in that backfield? Because if Seattle runs as much as they say they want to, I have a feeling both those guys can be fantasy starters. Yeah, for sure. I'm, if there's still going to be running the ball 55% of the time, there's got to be a lot of value in that running game. Of course, everyone's a running back by committee in this day and age. But if they're going to be running five or 600 times split between two people, there's got to be some sort of value overlay between them. Which one would you prefer to draft at value? Because Penny's going a little bit later than Chris Carson. Carson, I think, is coming off some sort of surgery or injury, if I'm not mistaken. Do you? Like, I personally prefer Penny because he's cheaper, and that is kind of a an easy default stance to take. But I do yeah. like Carson, the player. I just I have a little bit of concern about him relative to the fact that they paid up in the draft for Penny last year. Carson does mm-hmm. have some injury history and injury concerns right now. I, I think that that makes this a little bit easier of a decision to lean in favor of the cheap guy. But like I said, I think Carson could deliver if he's healthy enough to play in week one. If you're going to take the late guy in the seventh or eighth round, and he was a first round pick by the team just a year ago, I would have to side with you there. Yeah, I definitely got burned paying up for Penny last year. He was a a bit of a bust relative to what everyone was screaming about. It's, oh, the draft capital, the draft capital. This is going to make him the starter automatically. And if there's one team we know doesn't operate like that, it's probably Seattle. They tend to be uh, grit and workmanship over, you know, what the team invested in you for sure. Yeah, they've proved it again and again. They don't seem to care too much about um, how much money or where they took you. You just have to win the job. So – More recently than that general impacts of offensive line play article, you have a three-part series on 4 for 4 just ranking the different offensive lines around the league. Uh, Part 1 and Part 2 are up on the site as we're recording this. Part 3 is coming soon. Uh, Hopefully will be released within a week after this podcast posts. And kind of up top, I just want to have you explain the methodology of your rankings. Were they trying to project forward? Were they based on stats and analysis from the 2018 season? How did you blend that stuff all together and develop uh, these rankings of all 32 teams? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's admittedly more hindsight-based than I would like than I would like it, but I have and continue to add more forward-looking insight into the number, um, into the number being what metric I have 
it's a collection of stats that I weigh more or less heavily compared to how I feel they will affect the product on the field. So, say, stats that affect the passing game, like adjusted sack rate from football outsiders or just the raw number of QB hits allowed, those are going to mean a lot more to me than, say, um, adjusted line yards. Uh, not that the running game isn't important, but we just get way more fantasy points out of the passing game, so I want to weigh that a little up or a little heavier. Um, and then I'm even doubled up on it a little bit, so I have adjusted sack rate and I have QB hits. Some of those hits are exactly the same, but I feel it's worth it to really pound that home. So I have all that. I have projected experience, which isn't exactly <laughs> the, the most intricate of numbers. It's simply how many game starts you have along the um, projected uh, starting five. That's not weighed real heavily either, but it's got to be something. You've got to get that chemistry, which you can't really put into a number. So that's my attempt to get chemistry or how well the players play together. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about continuity a little bit later along the offensive line. But getting back to those stats that you're using and how you're weighting it relative to pass production and run production, did you consider perhaps doing two separate sets of rankings, one for the passing game and one for the running game? I have not, but that is not a bad idea at all. Um, I definitely wanted to encompass it into one single ranking, but there's no reason I couldn't do rankings for the uh, passing and rushing. We need both of those in fantasy football. Yeah, and I, I think that we tend to contextualize the positions on their own, right? We're not often weighing a running back versus a wide receiver. I mean, in flex decisions we do, but the bulk of our lineup decisions are going to be this running back versus this running back, this wide receiver versus this wide receiver, and so on. And I guess with that in mind, I'm curious, if you had to isolate just the running game, and, I, and I'm, I know you haven't done this, but it just kind of your gut reaction, who do you think would or who do you think would rank higher as a run blocking unit than might be illustrated in the rankings that are in these articles on the site? Uh, definitely Seattle, like who we just talked about. Cleveland, who I think we will talk about a little more in depth, um, had some problems uh, allowing sacks and allowing pressure, but we're very good up front. Um, the Titans, for sure. And uh, I guess the Texans would be a little better than being dead last. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of the Texans, I do want to talk about them and the Miami Dolphins because they are the two worst teams in your rankings of all 32 NFL franchises. I think it's important to think about the the extremes, the poles of these sorts of rankings as the most useful things. Like when I am in season, I also look at adjusted line yards and adjusted sack rate in terms of identifying potential, you know, mismatches uh, that could lead to fantasy value from week to week. But I found that you don't usually get a ton of value if you see that like the 13th ranked adjusted line yards team is going up against the 20th ranked adjusted line yards defense. You know what I mean? Yeah, for they're, sure. They're too close. There's too much gray area there. But when you see, you know, the number two team stacked up against the you know, like number 26 defense, that's a legit advantage at that point. And that's something you can try to exploit uh, when you're trying to determine how, you know, the flow of a game or the script of a game might play out. So, again, getting back to these teams that are at the extremes, the Houston Texans, the Miami Dolphins, very much a liability along the offensive line, right? And so I'm wondering, yes. when you look at Lamar Miller, Donta Foreman, Kenyon Drake at their ADPs, are you comfortable drafting them there? Because I look at those types of players, 
behind bad O-lines, and they feel like traps to me. What do you think? Uh, I totally agree, and I'm going to have to go against against my boy, Lamar Miller. I do love my plotting RB2, <laughs> but he's climbed all the way from the late seventh all the way to the fifth round now. Um, behind that offensive line that did not look great, and I don't believe improved that much um, after taking two small school guys that not a lot of people had heard of in the draft, um, Lamar Miller's just way too expensive. Uh, Dante Foreman in the double-digit rounds, if, if you're getting him the 10th to 12th round, I think that's worth a flyer. Um, we still have not seen him perform on an NFL field before, and there's plenty of um, people that have torn Achilles and never came back to produce in any sort of meaningful fantasy way. And maybe he's the first, but uh, pay him in the 12th round, that's just fine. Um, Drake has kind of gone the opposite as Lamar, where his ADP is almost the same as Lamar Miller's, but Kenyon Drake catches passes, and Lamar Miller does not. So I think Drake might be just fine, actually. Uh, I don't think he's going to be big in the run game, but I think uh, Dolphins are going to be playing from behind a whole crap ton this year. So, I mean, full PPR leagues, why not? If he can get 90 to 100 targets. Yeah, I, I typically look at those types of players, Miller and Drake, and where they go in drafts, and I often just want to be drafting other positions in those rounds anyway because I'm looking to lock up my running backs in the first couple rounds, maybe the first two to three rounds. I, I also just generally have fears associated with players on bad teams, which you know Drake definitely is. Uh, I think with Miller and Foreman, you could make the case that the Texans' offense is going to be pretty good despite their offensive line struggles and there might be some upside there with it but we haven't seen that with Miller over the past two years he's just been that kind of basic RB2 RB2 and a half almost and what you said about Foreman's Achilles injury is a big deal to me we've never really seen anybody come back from that and perform at the same sort of level with that said they didn't do anything really to address the running back position in the draft or in free agency. So that makes me think that the Texans are comfortable with the guys they have. Maybe they think that Foreman is going to step up and kind of deliver on what they wanted from him two years ago. I'm skeptical though. And just to give listeners a little bit more insight, I tend to be skeptical about most players. That's kind of my default stance is to tell me why I shouldn't draft a player here, as opposed to tell me why I should, because I feel like you can make upside cases for virtually anybody in a fantasy draft. It's, it's much more useful to nitpick the problems and Foreman and Miller and Drake all have enough problems to scare me off at their respective ADPs. I'm not really touching any of them. Although I will admit that, like you said, in, in a full PPR format, Drake does have some appeal there. I'm not going to feel, I'm not going to feel great about it though. No, definitely not. <laughs> if and, I have to take Drake, I'm probably not going to be very happy about it. Yeah. Now I want to talk about Washington's offensive line Considering all the injuries they suffered last year, I think you might be selling them a little short with a ranking at number 24 because kind of the case you made for the Cowboys where these guys are coming back from injury and illness, I'm hoping that we would see the same for Washington. And I think that that could mean good things for Darius Geis, uh, Adrian Peterson. But I'm curious how you see this offensive line impacting Dwayne Haskins because I assume that he is going to be the starter for most of the year. And the rap on him coming out of college was that he was very immobile. He's a dedicated pocket passer. If that O-line's a problem, Dwayne Haskins could be in trouble, right? I do believe so. And I, I was definitely rough on Washington. I got uh, slack 
flack from more than one person <laughs> putting them all the way down there. Um, the difference between them and Dallas, and this might be a little waffling, but the injuries along the Redskins line were just everybody. Everybody got injured. So while Dallas could swing around with one or two of the guys coming back, the Redskins started 11 people along their offensive line last year. That was second most in the league. Um, nine guys played over 200 snaps, so they had no no chance to coalesce. They got no chemistry from anyone. Um, but now, the, have... but now they're all experienced, right, Justin? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the projected experience. Um, but also on top of this, uh, if Trent Williams is really about to skate out of town, that's going to be a huge a huge hit to this offensive line, and he's just holding out and. They're going to pay him, and everything's going to be just fine and dandy. But he hasn't showed up, and he's demanding a trade, which is something almost unheard of of an offensive lineman. Uh, but I did also mention in the article that if any of these bottom half teams are going to be a top ten unit next year, it would be the Redskins. But I was a little mean on him for Dwayne Haskins in specific. I think, it, like you said, being an immobile quarterback, if that pocket's going to collapse around him, he's going to have a hard time. He's not like Deshaun Watson who can get sacked and then run for 25 yards the next play or, you know, Baker or anyone else who can get outside the pocket easily. So, yeah, if they if they send Trent Williams away and they don't get anything in the, uh, in the return, I don't think that bodes very well for Haskins. Yeah, I do have some level of trust in Jay Gruden to scheme that line to be productive or to be maybe better than they might seem on paper. And based upon the way this team is looking in terms of receiving talent, like they don't have a whole lot of great options in the receiving game. I'm also very interested in a Chris Thompson breakout here, or not breakout, but bounce back, I should say. Like that's a guy who kind of fell off the face of the earth over the past two seasons, and he's struggled with injuries his own self. So I don't know if that's necessarily going to get better for Chris Thompson, but he's a player I'm interested in in PPR formats as kind of a late round flyer, just based upon the way that this offense seems to be taking shape. What do you think about Thompson as a potential, you know, value play behind Geis and Adrian Peterson? I think that's a fantastic idea. Honestly, it's not going to cost you anything um, in a draft. I mean, I've just got his half PPR pulled up now. He's not even in the first 15 rounds. I don't have him on draft pulled up, but I would have to assume it's real darn close to that. And why not? You just cut him after a few weeks if he doesn't do anything. It's not going to cost you anything. Yeah, I guess if he's that cheap, though, you don't have to draft him either. You could just leave him on waivers until he does something. So, I don't know. There's there's always two sides to that coin, right? When a player's free, sometimes the better move might be to not draft them. How do you, I mean, how do you approach those sorts of situations at the end of drafts? Like, especially if you're drafting early. Like, I know in a couple leagues where I draft, you know, maybe in July as opposed to the end of August... I don't necessarily want to draft all of my key quote-unquote sleepers at the end of a draft. I'd almost rather leave them on waivers and, and kind of hide the fact that I like them. Do, do you practice anything similarly paranoid like that or, or tinfoil hat-ish? I don't, but I like that. <laughs> uh, typically what I'll do with the last few rounds is I'm going to try to identify whoever has the highest ceiling. And if, if I like them and they have a, a perceived high ceiling – that's the person I'm going to pick. Um, I don't, I'm not looking for a, a backup. I'm not really even looking for a handcuff except for very specific situations. I just want to pick a dude who might be a wide receiver one or an RB one if everything breaks his way. Cause I'm probably just going to send those people off to the waiver wire anyways. 
Yeah, give me an example of one of those players for you right now. Like, Who do you think is going under the radar that has that sort of sneaky upside that you can get in the late rounds? Um, Like a, like a Robert Foster. Like that, that dude could just catch three passes a game for 80, 90 yards and be a Deshaun Jackson. It's highly unlikely, but you're not paying anything to get him. So if it is highly unlikely and it's been five weeks and nothing happens, you just drop him. Or if it's been three weeks. I just don't mind dropping people like that. It doesn't bother me. Yeah, kind of along the same lines of what we talked about with the Dolphins earlier, just not wanting to pay for players on bad teams. I really don't want anything to do with the Buffalo offense this year. And <laughs> I feel that. you're not investing anything, really, when you're talking about that late of a pick. So it's it's this is just kind of the way I approach it, is I'd rather take that sort of upside shot on a team that I think could be ascending or sneaky good. I just don't necessarily see that from Buffalo, especially in the passing game, because I have no faith in Josh Allen. Like I understand he was an exciting fantasy player down the stretch last year, but Allen is a player I'm fading. And with that, I'm fading most of his receivers, but uh, let's get back to the O-line talk. We kind of talked about the cold water you poured on Washington's O-line and you did something similar uh, with Cleveland and kind of that hype train. You noted the Browns apparent indifference uh, for lack of a better word towards the offensive line over this off season. And you have them ranked 19th. And th- this isn't really a question to start, but boy, what a breath of fresh air in a world where it seems like everybody is drinking the Browns Kool-Aid. Uh, I-, I really appreciate that because I'm-, I'm kind of on the same board. Like I see where Baker Mayfield is going in drafts relative to other quarterbacks. And it's just, it's insane to me. Like, don't it's get me ridiculous. wrong. I love Baker, yeah. but QB is way too deep to be investing that level of draft capital in the position. So I agree. Yeah, kind of with the offensive line in mind, I want to focus on the two Browns players that are most closely attached to that O-line. And the first is Baker Mayfield. He's going around pick 80 to 90 in ADP, depending on where you look. So like 7th or 8th round, he's the QB5. And then the other player is Nick Chubb. In the running game, he's going around pick 18 to 20 in ADP, end of the second round, RB12. Do you think these guys are misvalued, properly valued? I think we both have already agreed that Baker Mayfield is a little overvalued, so maybe we can pass over him and get right to Chubb. Like, What's your take on this offense relative to where they're being drafted in fantasy? Uh, Mayfield, clearly, just as you said, not that I don't think he can be an exciting guy and maybe he'll have a great year, but I just don't want to draft a guy, a quarterback that high, unless I know that he can do it and it's consistent and whatever. He's been... Only been in the league for a year, and now he just lost his the best guard on his team, Kevin Zeitler's in New York now. So the pass protection that was already iffy just got worse. But for whatever reason, Chubb I feel is fine. If you can get him at the end of the second round, I feel like that's okay. I think he's a pretty surefire RB one, especially if uh, Hunt isn't coming back for ten weeks. Um, you know, everyone on the team is yelling at Duke Johnson for whatever reason right now, because he wants to get out of town. I, I think Chubb is going to be handling a whole lot of touches, so I don't mind him as much. Where's o- Odell's going in the beginning of the second? I think that's probably fine, too. I think Baker's the one that it's just too much. It's too high. Yeah, I agree. Now, you, you mentioned Zeitler leaving, but in general, Cleveland is bringing back most of the same O-line, and we kind of touched on the idea of continuity earlier, and... I'm wondering if you think Cleveland can make up for not adding O-line talent just through the sheer continuity that they have from last season. Do you think that losing Zeitler impacts that too much, or do you think there's something to be said about all the other guys they have returning? I think there is 
I mean, you, you prove a, a great point there. Like, all these guys are coming back. We're talking about chemistry. We're talking about coalescing on the line. Everybody's coming back. But, yeah, I think it ends up being a net negative because Zeitler's leaving, because Zeitler was so good. Um, and I understand that they had to package him to get an incredible wide receiver. So, you know, from Baker's point of view, that's amazing. But they already had problems along the edge. And if they're going to start having problems along the center of the line, too, I think that kind of cuts the whole chemistry building aspect out of it because there's a lot of talent they lost with Zeitler gone. Yeah, but would you agree that a mobile quarterback can help shore up the problems along an offensive line? Like we've seen Russell Wilson do this for years. We've seen Deshaun Watson succeed in the face of a bad O-line. Mayfield's you know, pretty spry himself. And so I look at him in that offense and I look at the fact that they added Odell Beckham to what was already a pretty good offense. I think that maybe losing Zeitler is made up for the fact by Odell Beckham's presence. And not to say that a wide receiver directly replaces an O-lineman, but the fact that they're improving in one aspect of their offense can make up for the fact that they're losing, you know, some amount of relevance along the offensive line. Do you agree with that sort of sentiment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially Odell too. We've, we've seen Beckham take six yard slants to the house for years now. So if Baker's getting rid of the ball in 1.8 seconds <laughs> to, to hit Odell on the, on the numbers three yards down the field and he's taking it 30 yards, I think they'll be fine. So that's a very good point. Yeah, this is another one of those cases, right, where you look at where Cleveland ranks for you at number 19, but because they're in the middle, we can't use that ranking to totally dictate how we think the O-line is going to affect fantasy, right? We have to look at that as kind of a, they're a middle-of-the-pack team, and so at that point we need to put more stock into the other players in that offense, into Mayfield, into Chubb, into Odell Beckham, into Jarvis Landry and David Njoku. And if we look at all those pieces and we see, hey, this is a – if we ignore the offensive line, this is a good offense, right? So if their O-line is serviceable, I think that they're going to be fine. Now, with that said, Baker Mayfield's still going too high. Yeah, I think so. And we'll see. And maybe we're wrong, but I just I don't want to bet that much of my draft capital on someone who's only done it for a half season. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're wrong all the time in fantasy football, so I, I don't mind being True. wrong. Um, yeah. Let's get back to that idea of continuity. And I want to know, maybe besides Cleveland, which teams do you think are going to show the biggest changes, either positive or negative, in O-line continuity this season? And what do you think those changes mean for fantasy football? Probably the, the biggest team on either side of it is uh, the Los Angeles Rams. And I still have them ranked pretty high. I still think they're going to be a pretty darn good um, group of people there. But they lost a lot. They lost a whole lot of experience. Um, they lost their left guard, Roger Saffold, who was incredible last year they lost their center john sullivan if they're gonna lose somebody he was the one to be losing but i think that's the the biggest hit if they hadn't have lost those people and they continued on this incredible stretch uh they had the highest adjusted line yards last season by a ton if they brought back that same group of people i would be even more excited about their offense but i'm a little little iffy and clearly if any team can scheme away from weaknesses, it's probably the Rams at this point. Unless they're playing the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, and then they'll only score six points? <laughs> or was it three? I think it was three. I went to sleep at halftime. You and everyone uh, else. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the other end, we kind of already talked about them, but the Cowboys bringing those big dudes back. Um, 
even one of them, I really feel like they'll improve by leaps and bounds. And then the Redskins, of course, even after I crapped on them, I mean, if they bring back all all their guys healthy, or at least most of those guys, they're not going to be 24th halfway through the season. They're going to yeah. be a hell of a lot higher than that. Yeah, for sure. Let's um let's weigh in on you know the biggest hot button topic in fantasy right now, and that is the running back situation in Los Angeles with the Rams. Are you a Daryl Henderson truther like ninety nine percent of the oh, rest yeah. of the fantasy community? Like what? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's actually a um a four for four article on Daryl Henderson penned by uh, Justin Edwards. I think it's pretty compelling. I would I would suggest everyone go give it a read. So how far are you letting Gurley slide then? Because this is, I think, the more interesting question. Like, it's easy to say, yeah, go draft Daryl Henderson in the seventh round or the eighth round. But what do we do with Gurley? Like, are you willing to take him at the end of the first round? Would you have to see him fall to the end of the second round? What is your take on him? Because we really don't know that much. Like, we know he was hurt last season, but he's got this whole offseason to get better. This was my argument for not being afraid of Andrew Luck last year. Right? Like, we know he's a great player. He's had plenty of time to get healthy. Gurley hasn't had quite as much time as Andrew Luck took, but he should be ready to play in some capacity by the start of the year. I have to believe that. And we know how good he is when he does play. So are we maybe overreacting here? Like, how far do you let Gurley slide? I still think there's a couple of dudes that I wouldn't mind taking ahead of him right there at the end of the first but like the end of the second, that's that's ludicrous. Like you have to be able, you have to bet on talent at some point. And clearly, if he's healthy, he's already got the talent. He's already done this. He's in a great offense. It might not be a, as great as last year, but it's going to be pretty damn close. Um, at the end of the first, I still don't mind passing on him. But at the end of the second, yeah, that's that's ludicrous. I'll take him there. And it, you know, if it sinks the season, then it sinks the season. Right. I mean, this happened with Gurley what, two, three years ago, where he ended up sliding to the end of the second and beginning of the third, and he just straight up won people leagues that year. So yeah. I, I I can't let him fall past that. I think the middle of the second round is probably about where I like just wouldn't be willing to say no. What do you think about the other kind of unheralded running back in that backfield, Malcolm Brown? Do you have any interest in him as maybe like a last-round pick? Uh, man, yeah, I guess so. It's hard to say no to that. I mean, he's a piece in the offense, and they've already said, you know, for what it's worth, they've said that Henderson is more similar to a satellite back. They did compare him to Alvin Kamara, but that was just kind of blowing smoke at that point, I think. But, yeah, I mean, you kind of have to if it's the last round, and if you really think that Gurley is not going to be ready to go week one, you might as well just get anyone that has a Rams jersey on in the in the 20s. Just get any running back at the end of the draft as you can. Yeah, I kind of feel like the way the hype is going on Henderson actually makes Brown the more intriguing, like, deep value. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing deep about Henderson at this point. He's being drafted like, you know, the the most important handcuffs. Like, he's basically this year's James Conner right now, where last year there was this uncertainty around Le'Veon Bell, and so people were taking James Conner in the middle rounds. And eventually James Conner became a first-rounder. So maybe we'll see that happen with Henderson. But at the same time, I don't think that people are giving enough credit to Brown as a player and what he could potentially be if they do use Henderson like a satellite back. But anyway, that's enough Los Angeles running back talk. <laughs> Let's get back to your rankings. I was surprised to see the Detroit Lions rank as high as 13th. How do you think their backfield split is going to play out between Carrion Johnson, C.J. Anderson, you know, formerly of the Rams, and Theo Riddick? 
Because if their O-line is going to be this good, and we know that they want to run the ball, they're basically the NFC North version of the Seahawks, if you if you read the blurbs. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you doing with this backfield? Do you think they can be successful? Do you think they can sustain value for more than one player? Because at this point, people are drafting on Johnson like he's the starter. I'm curious if you think there's still room for C.J. Anderson and Riddick in that backfield. Uh, I think Riddick's going to be what he has always been not useful. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's going to catch passes and once or twice a year, he's going to catch like 12 because they're going to be down by four touchdowns and they're just running out of the shotgun. Um, but yeah, I, I don't see anything going on with Riddick. CJ Anderson. I don't know if he's going to have standalone value, but he's probably going to be annoying. And that blunt role, LeGarrette Blount role, just pounded it in the goal lines and then, you know, carry on. Is there enough left for him without goal line working without catching the ball? I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. I, when I look at this backfield, I just see a mess, right? And yeah, people are expecting carry on Johnson to ascend this year because he was good when he played last year. But the fact is there are these two other running backs who vulture him in different ways, right? CJ Anderson is going to, Vulture the short line work in theory. Potentially that means goal line carries. Riddick is going to vulture carry on Johnson in the passing game. I think maybe now that Golden Tate is out of Detroit, we might see Riddick take more slot snaps, which could be fine. That maybe means that Riddick and Johnson could be on the field at the same time. I'm not sure if the lines are going to play it that way, but this is a backfield that I'm probably avoiding just because it is so nebulous. And because like with the Dolphins we talked about earlier, it's going to be a bad team. And I, I'm not really interested in that. What about Matthew Stafford? Because he's fallen off a ton. He's the ideal late round two quarterback rebound by just because he had one bad year and now everybody thinks he's done. And I, I don't necessarily think he's going to bounce back in a huge way, but you see where Stafford is going in drafts now. And relative to where you had to take him last year, two years ago, three years ago, he seems like a supreme potential value. So what's your take on Stafford and the passing offense in Detroit? Um, going back to that, the mock draft that we talked about earlier, um, it's a mock draft, so, you know, whatever. But it's a super flex. Matt Stafford went at 10.07 as the QB 26. Wow. That seems outlandish to me. Like, that is way, way too late. Like, I know he's he hasn't flashed, and who knows, maybe they're going to be a, a run-first offense this year, but the QB 26 is ridiculous. It just goes to show you how deep the quarterback position is right now. And that's it's a great illustration of that. And I hate to say it, I'm not totally against devaluing Stafford that much. Because when the position is that deep, you have to look at kind of these more outlandish angles to try to mine value or assign red flags to players. And with Stafford, one of the big things I see is the division he plays in is really tough he's going to have to play the Bears defense twice he's going to have to play the Vikings defense twice the Green Bay defense seems like it's getting to be really good they're one of my favorite uh, late round best ball defense picks by the way the Packers oh I like that yeah. yeah and so with that in mind I think there are six games right there against quality defenses not to mention all the other potentially tough defenses he could be playing in the schedule I I 
And so outside of that, those matchups in division that they have, they're also going to have to face the Chargers, the Eagles, and those are in the first three weeks as well. Kansas City in week four, who doesn't have a great defense, but the pressure that their offense can put on you could put Matthew Stafford in a tight spot. Like This is just a schedule that I'm not really thrilled about if I'm a Matthew Stafford owner. And so with that in mind, I'm okay with dropping him down as low as he's going in drafts. But the point is that he's still a fine quarterback. He's a serviceable player, and yeah. that's why you can wait at the position. And you can wait not just for Matthew Stafford. You can wait for the guy who's QB 20 in a one-quarterback league and still get a player who's fine, right? We mm-hmm. recently did an analyst mock draft for 4 for 4 that I'm going to be writing up that should be posted on the site very soon as well. And J.J. Zacharyson got Lamar Jackson with the very last pick of that draft, 16 rounds. Nice. So... I mean, you look at that stuff happening, and why would you ever pay up for any quarterback, let alone like the guys who you have to take in the seventh or eighth round, right? Yeah. Uh, one last one last thing on Detroit. I I don't know how sneaky this is. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking this, but with Golden Tate gone, with that security blanket gone, can Hawkinson be that security blanket as a tight end? Is he going too late? Yeah, he's been a fascinating player to evaluate just because – Rookie tight ends are so hit or miss, and usually yeah, miss. Also, yeah, so mostly mostly miss. Yeah, mostly miss. And with that in mind, I'm apprehensive to take him because I usually will find some other tight end I can talk myself into. But I'm also such a late round tight end drafter that I will ride that hairy edge long enough in some drafts <laughs> to where all the guys that I do like get scooped out from under me. And at that point, I am looking at Hawkinson versus maybe one of the injury-prone guys like Jordan Reed or Tyler Eifert. And Olsen. at that point, yeah, or Greg Olson, like those types of players. And at that point, we talked about this earlier, just go for the upside of the new player, I think, especially because we know he was a monster producer or a monster talent in college. Mm-hmm. With that in mind and the context of that team in mind, I think you're right. I think there's some potential value there, and he could be a really sneaky avenue to value at the tight end position. I like that. Anyway, let's get back to offensive line. The last team I really want to highlight here was the last one, was the final team you ranked in part two of your offensive line rankings, the Baltimore Ravens. And I don't actually want you to talk about them on the show. I want listeners to go check out the article because the points you make about that offensive line's impact on that team is really great stuff. And so I just wanted to kind of plug that and tease it uh, right now um, before we move on to the next team, uh, Pittsburgh. The Steelers O-line ranking so highly, uh, I mean, again, the listeners are going to have to check out part three to see exactly how high they rank. It was interesting to me. I know that they had a good offensive line. I I was surprised to see you rank them as high as you did. And with that in mind, I'm wondering, do you think James Conner should be going closer to those elite running backs at the top of round one instead of near the end of round one. We talked about Chubb being a type of value like that, where he's going at the end of round two. Maybe he should be going higher. Is James Conner in the same boat for you? Yes. Uh, I think Conner is just as much in play as anyone else. Former teammate Le'Veon. Like, I think, I mean, if, if you're going to force me to pick, I'd probably take Conner over Bell. Connor was in the league last year. He proved he could play. And he has a much better offense. He has a much better offensive line. I'd push him higher and higher there. Just their offensive line has been so consistent for so long. They did just lose Mike Munchak, so that might be a thing. Um, I was reading something about how his assistant is the one that's taking over. 
and he knows just as much as Munchak, blah, 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 blah. We're kind of getting in the weeds there. But either way, they still have all of the same players except for Marcus Gilbert, who got traded to Arizona. But outside, the, outside of that, the other four guys have played with each other since the middle of 2015. It's a long time in football years for the same people to be playing right next to each other. Uh, the guy that's going to be taking over for Marcus Gilbert is Matt Filer, who played almost 700 snaps at right tackle last year. So he's going to have no problem just sliding right in there. I'm just as high on their offense as I would be any other year. Talking about safety blankets, Roethlisberger did lose Antonio Brown. So we'll see how that's affected or how that will affect his play. But as far as Connor is concerned, I have no problem taking Connor high. <laughs> like the middle of the first round, that's just fine with me. I would have no problem taking him there. Yeah, I totally agree. Drafters have been really quick to pump up James Washington and Vance McDonald based upon all the vacated targets that Antonio Brown has created in Pittsburgh. And I think that that's valid. I think that those guys should jump up in value a lot this year. But what I really see is more incentive for them to run the ball a little bit more because they don't have the same level of receiving talent now that Antonio Brown is gone. You mentioned Connor being ahead of Le'Veon Bell for you. What about Connor versus Melvin Gordon? And let's assume like half-point PPR to kind of split the difference between standard and, and full PPR. Ooh, that is a really good question. That's right in the middle of the first round. That's when I was talking about, man, I just don't I don't see Connor losing a lot of meaningful snaps to Jalen Samuels or anyone else on that offense. That might take Connor. Okay. How about Connor versus David Johnson? Oh man. Putting you on He's the spot. Rough. Yes, I, I know. No, no, no. I, I, I love it. Um whew. God, I love David Johnson. I might still go Connor. Like I we know what Connor's going to do. We don't even know what this offense is in Arizona yet. And it's new and exciting, but we don't know if it's going to work yet. They still have a lot of the same pieces they did. Well, on the offensive line, they still have a lot of the same pieces they did last year, and they didn't do very well. So I bring all this up because in most drafts, I think you're going to see Gordon and Johnson and maybe even Le'Veon Bell go ahead of Connor. And mm-hmm. at that point, is that enough to make you maybe prefer to have a later draft pick? in the pick order? Like, would you rather draft closer to number 12 than to number one? Because if you already like Connor more than those players and you can get him later, you're setting yourself up for maybe a better second round pick to pair with Connor who you already like more. Like what's your take on draft positioning like that? And specific to this season, what are you hoping to find in the first round and how does that inform your choice of, of pick if you have one? Uh, Exactly along the lines of what you're talking about. If if I can get in the back of the first the first round or you know the back of the draft order in general, um, I would have no problem with that. If I could take if I could leave with two running backs and not have to worry about it for a while. If I can leave with Connor and Joe Mixon, or if I can leave with Connor and a, an elite wide receiver one. If I could leave with Julio and Connor, I'm perfectly fine with starting the draft like that. Um, I try not to think about it too much just because once you're assigned the order, there's nothing you can do about it. Unless we're in, you know, the dynasty or something, then we can be trading back and swapping futures and whatnot. But yeah, honestly, um, of course I'd love Saquon Barkley. I'd love McCaffrey, Kamara, Zeke. But if that's not where I am, I have no problem with that. If I can leave with Mixon and Connor, I'm totally content with that. 
Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. You want to be top four, if you can, to get Barkley or Elliott or McCaffrey or Kamara in some order. And I don't know exactly what the right order to rank those guys is. It probably either. depends on the scoring format. I, With that in mind, I'd probably prefer just to have the fourth pick so that whichever one falls to me, I can just take and not feel like I <laughs> right. have to make a choice. <laughs> exactly. But after that, I want to be as close to the other turn as possible. Like put me at pick 10 or pick 11 or pick 12 because mm-hmm. then I'm getting one of these, like you said, one of these other backs who I think is good, plus probably an elite wide receiver. And if not elite, an elite wide receiver, two really good running backs. Like I'm pairing James Conner, with Mixon or maybe with Gurley, you know, and you're, you're trying to mine value that way. It's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. I, I really do think that in most drafts, whether it's football, fantasy baseball, fantasy basketball, you want to be closer to the turn because it lets you plan your picks together a little bit better to give you a more cohesive team strategy. I know that some people prefer to draft in the middle because it helps them avoid getting caught up in positional runs, but I don't know. I would much rather have my picks close together. And with that in mind, I either want the elite talent of one of those top four running backs or I want to be at the back end. So I'm just planning two picks together and trying to get as much value with my first two rounds as possible. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely right with you there. Good deal. So that kind of does it for team specific stuff I wanted to talk to you about. Are there any other teams you wanted to bring up as noteworthy in terms of offensive line play? I mean, we talked about continuity a little bit earlier. It's just, it's really impressive what the Patriots, I mean, of course it's impressive what the Patriots are doing in all aspects of the freaking game, but man, just their offensive line. And they lost Trent Brown, who's a great tackle, and it really doesn't even matter. Like, no one even, <laughs> no one even mentions it. This is like a top 10 tackle. No one, no one gives a crap. Like, yeah, it's Dante Scarnecchia and it's the Patriots, and they're just going to keep going. And, no one cares. But it's just an interesting note. Like they're just they're indestructible until one of those old, old men retire. Yep. And they're another one of those teams with a confounding backfield split. How do you see that one playing out? Are you oh, Sony Michelle guy? Would you rather wait for is it Damian Williams? Is that right? Yeah. Uh or Harris. Damian Harris, thank you. It's still early in the season. I'm I'm getting yeah. rust off with these new names. No, you're fine. It's uh June and I It's June of 2019, and I still say San Diego Chargers three times a week. (laughs) Um, I I don't know. (laughs) I don't don't think I want Michelle. I mean, I do, but probably not where he's going. I don't want Damian Harris either, but maybe I do. I I do want Damian Harris. I think that's kind of where I fall. I actually picked Michelle in that KOTH draft in the fifth round, but mostly just as kind of like an all-upside best ball type of play. I already sure. had Derrick Henry and oh, yeah, Alvin Kamara. Party. So I, if I only get five weeks that are usable from Sonny Michelle, that might just be good enough. And even sure. if he's not healthy to start the season, I think maybe he comes around kind of mid-year like he did last season and gives me those, you know, a couple two touchdown games or something crazy like that and pays off. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I think that that's always a confounding decision is what to do with the Patriots backfield. This year is, is no different. Um, let, let's wrap things up with kind of a big picture look at your O-line rankings and how you would apply them. Like how can readers derive value when they're evaluating the various fantasy positions, you know, running back, quarterback, wide receiver, tight end relative to offensive line play, like big picture. How does that look for you? And maybe give me some specific players from each position that you think are either underrated or overrated due to 
the impact of their offensive lines? Uh, I mean, just the you know bird's eye view. I think it's a good idea to try to keep track of your quote unquote favorite team's offensive line. Uh, if for no other reason, just to have a better appreciation for that part of the game. Yeah. Um, it's it's just awesome once you kind of get in the understanding of it, so you're not just watching big giant men run into each other. Um, as far as the rankings in particular, I would definitely check out the articles on 4 for 4. Go look up your favorite team. Um, come complain to me when the <laughs> rankings are too low, and that's fine. I can take it. It's not a big deal. Um but as far as the rankings for fantasy football, which is why we're all here, I really think the numbers can be interpreted just like a, a quarterback rankings. Like you want one of the top seven quarterbacks. You want one of the top seven offensive lines. You do not want one of the bottom seven offensive lines. You do not want one of the bottom seven quarterbacks. Everything in the middle, eh, you can kind of take for interpretation. It's not going to kill you to have the 12th offensive line working with your fantasy assets. It's not going to kill you to have the 20th, but there's still some pretty actionable information on each of the individual write-ups. As far as underrated and overrated specific players, uh, Mayfield, someone we already touched on. I think he's overrated. I don't think he's bad. I think he's not uh, worth a QB five price. Um, Running back, Latavius Murray is in an incredible spot in New Orleans. Uh, maybe I'm just not listening, but I feel like people are not talking about him. And I think he'll slot right into the Ingram role like butter. Maybe a little less a little less work, a little more work for Camaro. But he's got an amazing offensive line in front of him. And he's the 1B. Eh, he's the 2 behind Camaro. But he's a good value right now. Um, I think Funches is in- interesting at the wide receiver position. Especially in like a best ball league because Andrew Luck loves his big men. He loves tight ends. He likes having big red zone targets. He's been using tight end type bodies since college. So his entire career. Um, so I think there's something to be said there. And then, um, uh, the Bears offensive line ended up ranking. I didn't bring this up earlier, but the Bears offensive line ended up ranking pretty well, especially in the, um, QB metrics, keeping Trubisky clean. He continues to learn the position. They don't commit penalties. Trubisky barely ever gets hit. I think Trey Burton is in a good spot as a tight end. Uh, yeah, that's about it. So how do you how do you feel about Adam Shaheen in that offense? Because I feel like a lot of people are on Dallas Goddard as this young tight end who's playing behind a more entrenched guy in Zach Ertz, but people are excited about Goddard. And I'm surprised we're not seeing the same level of enthusiasm for Adam Shaheen playing behind Burton because as you know serviceable as Burton was last year he wasn't elite necessarily like he's been pretty good but Shaheen is a it's a behemoth he's a total monster and I think that we could see him maybe deliver on some of that same sort of hype that Goddard is seeing what what do you think about him in that offense uh kind of worried about Shaheen out um running routes I don't know if they're going to keep him in just as a security blanket. I don't know if he's going to be, I don't know how many two tight end sets the bears are running, but I don't think he's going to be in there for Burton to run routes. They're going to be using him in the run game or they're not going to be using him at all, but I might be mistaken there too. Yeah. I could see him being the type of red zone only threat that, that can work in fantasy. Like 
Yeah. J- Jimmy Graham on the Packers. You know what I mean? Like where <laughs> yeah. he doesn't really do anything except catch touchdowns on play action around the goal line. And, you know, in best ball, that can work. Uh, week to week in a season-long league, maybe not. <laughs> but in those sorts of contexts, you we, we don't really need to be drafting the Adam Shaheen types. Are there any tight ends that you're worried about because you think they're going to have to stay in to block more than fantasy drafters might realize? Um, I, I did touch on, and I really sound like I'm slamming on Cleveland. I promise <laughs> I do not hate the Browns. But uh, in Joku, once they switched over from the Hugh Jackson, Todd Haley experiment, if you can call it that, and Joku lined up in line a lot more. So is he going to be using that freakish athletic ability? Are we going to be able to see that? Um, is he going to finish above the tight end 15? Because the tight end 15 is not really worth anything for us. But yeah, it's not that big of a deal. I just think he lined up in line a little more because of the tackles, because they were having such a hard time. Yeah, but I mean, he can't block anyway, so they're not really incentivized to use him like that. <laughs> right? Yeah, just <laughs> give it up. Put him in the slot. No, I actually have some hope for Njoku. I think that the hate might have gone a little too far on him at this point. I mm-hmm. don't really want to draft him where he's going because there are a couple of tight ends that I like going a little bit later, and I'll save that for the next episode. I'm, I know I'm going to talk tight ends uh, with the next guest. So uh, tune back in for that, listeners. Uh Justin, it's been great talking O-line with you and and everything else in between. Uh, Is there anything else you want to touch on before we sign off here? No, I don't think so. Uh, I want to thank you for having me on. It's been a blast. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, man, it's great to get you on finally. And, uh, I mean, dating back to the two QBs days. And uh, we'll get you back on again, uh, maybe during the season or or closer to the season. Um, Why don't you let folks know uh, where they can find you on social media and all that good stuff? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at... Justin underscore Redwords. Um, I'll be writing about O-line and player profiles and all types of stuff for 4 for 4 along the summer and hopefully in season as well. Yep. You can follow me, listeners, at Greg Sauce, and I will link to all of Justin's O-line work in the show notes. Be sure to check that out. Uh, come visit the site. And while you're there, if you haven't already, of course, subscribe. Early bird rates are happening through June 30th. With those early bird rates, you get a $35 coupon to join an FFPC league. And if you sign up before June 14th, you'll be entered into that contest uh, to win a Devontae Adams signed jersey. Get on it, 444.com. Thanks for listening.